Welcome to Saltier Politics, Julie. I think the theme of our podcast and this week is new beginnings, and also this week is a completely new beginning. Before we get into the news of the week, do you remember time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee? Remember Bridgegate? Oh yes, that little that little issue that was. I believe it's now eight years ago. Um, well, on this week's podcast, we have my good friend Bill Baroni, who was one of the people who went on trial for the Bridgegate scandal um, and was convicted, served time in prison. There was a twist and he, the Supreme Court overturned his conviction, which was amazing. But he talks about, it's not so much about Bridgegate because I think that whole story has been beaten to death and, you know, there's really nothing more than that, that we can talk about that hasn't been testified to or written about or joked about or, or just completely ad nauseumed about. But it's really about what happens to somebody when they have a fall from grace the way Bill did and how they rebuild their lives. And I think it's not just applicable to somebody like Bill, who obviously had an incredibly high profile fall from grace and an incredibly high profile case. But it applies to anybody going through diverse, um, not diversity, because that would be crazy. Adversity, excuse me, (laughs) would apply to anybody going through adversity. And he is um, just he's got a very Zen attitude about it, which I I know also just from talking to him all the time and being in front of his for so many years that it's not easy. I know there are days that he struggles with, with being Zen and accepting of of his life the way we all do, but he has changed quite a bit from the very ambitious rock star politician whom I knew 20 years ago um, and, and, and loved 20 years ago and loved today. I mean, he's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, but when you go through something like this, it changes you. And I can certainly speak to having gone through some adversity, not like him, obviously myself over the last few years. And and so have you. And so probably is everybody listening to this podcast. And if they haven't yet, they will eventually because it gets everybody at some point. So I think it's a really fascinating discussion we had with him, which I'm excited. Yeah. And that was really one of the things that I think his his story really transcends and also with with what you went through too with fox to the the human toll that this stuff takes on a person and that everything you have built and worked for for all of this time comes to just a screeching halt it's not something that you can plan for you can't plan for with your lawsuit that now you have to revamp your whole career your whole tv career like what do you do and then bill as well having to completely okay he's not going to be in politics and all that work. And what's so interesting is, you know, you go through life. I know Bill did. I know I did too on a trajectory. That's a one way trajectory, right? You're going up, 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 up. And then suddenly it comes to a screeching halt. What I think is fascinating about that is you go through life when you get to a certain place in life where you're recognized by people for your work and suddenly you're recognized for people by people for something else. I keep joking that I could cure cancer, but the first paragraph of my obituary would be Julia Ginsky, comma, who sued, you know, Roger Ailes for sexual harassment, comma. His will be Bill Baroni, comma, one of the defendants in the Bridgegate trial, comma. No matter what else he does, no matter what else I do, um, that is certainly not what either of us wants to be known for, I think, in life. Now, mine was obviously voluntary. I chose to, I chose to um, bring my lawsuit, Bill obviously did not choose to go on trial or, or, or to be caught up in a political scandal. Um, but these are things that I think nobody really considers when they make decisions in life. 
And I think what both he and I kind of realized, and I, I'm projecting onto him, is you, you have to lean into that. If that's what I'm going to be known for for the rest of my life, how do I make that something meaningful to me and to help others? So for me, that was founding Lift Our Voices and making sure nobody's bound by an NDA or an arbitration agreement ever again for toxic work issues. For Bill, uh, it's it's what he talks about in this podcast, which is making sure that he becomes a better human being, that he is more considerate. I mean, I'll, I'll let him describe it himself, but I think it's a very, very fascinating interview conversation. Really, it's not an interview, but a conversation for people to hear. Nothing to do with any salacious Bridgegate gossip because there really isn't much more to tell, much more to do with just how a human being is affected by going through something that traumatic. Um, and the people around him too, not just Bill. I mean, it affected all of us. Um, I'm very affected by the Bridgegate trial as well, because while I wasn't involved in it and didn't have anything to do with, with it, um, a lot of my friends were, and I had to watch them as they navigated all of it. So that was tough for everybody. Um, this week I have, felt like an anvil is lifted off my chest for the first time in five years. How about you? It was crazy waking up this morning because yesterday I still woke up with that feeling of dread just in case something, we're taping this by the way on a Thursday, the day after inauguration. Yesterday during inauguration day, I woke up still with that feeling, that anvil you said, because I'm like, you know, something could happen. And this morning, I woke up without that for the first time in a very long time because working in the industries we work in, it's like you're holding your breath for just something you couldn't even think of shitty to happen. And now it's like at least we're dealing in a plane of facts. Even watching the press briefing last night, I don't know if you had a chance to – it was just completely – It was normal. Civilized. It was civilized. Yeah. (laughs) It was normal and – People will say, well, that's because the press isn't giving a hard time to Democrats the way they do to Republicans. Give me a break. You know, I used to watch Dana Perino or Tony Snow do interviews for George Bush at the White House briefing room, and it was civilized. They went back and forth with the press, but it was civilized. And Biden will go back and forth with the press, too. I mean, God, nobody went back and forth with the press more than Clinton's um, press secretary when he was being impeached. And yet... It was still civilized and you still had conversations that were normal, that were not like just blatant fantasies being spun out of whole cloth. Well, I don't know what I don't want to talk about Donald Trump anymore. Yeah, I'm actually over it. You know, the nice thing about this is we don't have to talk about him every day anymore or think about him. Like it is entirely immaterial to me what he's doing at Mar-a-Lago today, other than I continue to insist that he is a national security threat because of all the information that he has from the president's daily brief, regardless of how scantily he might have read it, that he will potentially inadvertently reveal to the wrong people. Um, And that goes for Jared Kushner as well. That is the only concern that I have about him. I hope Joe Biden does not choose to share intelligence briefings with him. That's up to Biden. I think it's hilarious that all the MAGA people are upset um, that he, at the very last, pardoned all his cronies and swamp creatures and not necessarily, you know, the stuff that they all wanted him to do. Oh, the QAnon um, people are, are at a loss. Are at a loss, which, 
You know, the QAnon people, I'll say this about the QAnon people. This is why I stopped arguing about politics with people on Twitter. And it's not just QAnon. It's anybody who's still in this cult. This is uh, the QAnon people. This is not a political solution that needs to be provided to the QAnon people. It strikes me. There's a very fascinating article about a woman in the New York Times, um, Harvard graduate, lives in the Upper East Side who is uh, apparently she calls herself the QAnon meme queen. I saw that. Yeah. And you read her story and you think, how did this woman come to this? And then you realize she sounds like a very lonely person. Mm -hmm. And what these conspiracy theories tend to do, and it's not just the conspiracy theory, it's the MAGA crew. It's this, 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 um, it makes you feel like you're part of something bigger. It gives you purpose in life. It makes you feel like you say something, you get a hundred or a thousand retweets. And suddenly people are listening to you. They care about your opinion. It gives you a sense of self-worth. So this to me is not so much a political debate. It's much more of a debate about how COVID has contributed to this, but how this has become a psychological issue where people need validation and they don't feel as lonely. I mean, this woman is... Divorce, which is fine. There are plenty of divorced people or single people in the world, um, but she doesn't have many friends, she claims, anymore. Um, she has no children. And so her her community is the QAnon community. And for a lot of these Trump supporters, their community is who they find on Twitter. And, I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's not a political debate, right? I think it's also similar to a lot of the veterans who joined this Capitol riot. It's so much so often in the military, there's no transition out and they don't have that same kind of status or, or that kind of enemy that they're fighting against. So it's a loss of identity. And I think that's exactly what this woman had, this loss of who she is and where she belongs. And it gave her a sense of community. That's not political. No, that's that's psychological. And that's why it's going to be so hard to deprogram some of these QAnon people, because they're it's not really about trump it's about the validation that they get from him um it's almost like a religion to some extent where they're getting something spiritual and trump just happens to be the person whom they've imbued with the sense of of importance but he's a stand-in for whatever else is missing in their life which is community and and and, and friendships and that's sad. It actually says something very deep about the state of life in America today, how the internet has made people at once more connected, but also more lonely. She lives in the Upper East Side of New York. I always joke New York is the largest city in the country, and it can also be the loneliest city in the country. You don't have to talk to anybody in New York if you don't want to. Right. Nobody's going to be in your business if you don't want them to be. It's not like living in a small town where, you know, you have to run into the same people on the street or you can just disappear in New York. And that's both good and bad. Exactly to your point, Julie, the feeling of loneliness. And I think in in these situations, like what Bill went through, like what you went through, you, you also find that community and strength in it in a way too, because the people who are loyal and close to you really remain that way or show show their true colors even more. Yes. And I think what's also fascinating is people are very much picked up by the people around them. Like when I was going through my stuff with Fox and other 
2017 was just a bad year, generally, not just because of Fox, but you really have friends who just carry you, right? When you can't carry yourself, they just pick you up. But you also find out very quickly who your friends are. And that's something that I went through life. I was 40. How old was I in 2017? I was 44 in 2017. And is that right? Yeah, I'm trying to do math. And it took me that long to figure that out. And that's that's kind of a bitter lesson to learn. I hate to say it, but it's part of the course of what we're talking about, both with QAnon and these people not having a community, and also what we're talking about with Bill on this podcast. You you find out you find out in ways that are very brutal as to really who your friends are and who they aren't, and it makes you it hardens you, I think, to an extent as a as a person. Sadly, I wish it didn't, but it does. So that's also something that I think people need to figure out. All right. Enjoy, enjoy our incredible interview. Let's set the scene for what your life was like before Bridgegate, before that traffic on the bridge ever happened. I mean, I met you, gosh, I don't know, you and I have known each other for probably for over 20 years, but you were the... Um, great shining hope. I can say this. I don't know if you can say this about yourself, but I can say this about you. You were sort of the great shining hope of the Republican Party in New Jersey. You really destined, I think, for statewide office um, well before Chris Christie ran for anything. Um, You were a state assembly member. Then you became a state senator and you won a district that has been long held by Democrats since you left. Um, You were able to win support, not just from Republicans, but from, from Democrats, from independents, you were, you know, I've worked for a bunch of politicians. I remember you and I used to, um, sometimes get together in Princeton, New Jersey, which was not in your district, but it was adjacent to your district and sit around and drink coffee on a bench and just talk about life. And you were, you had what I think people like Cory Booker have, which is that people would stop you. I mean, they knew who you were. You were really a political celebrity in New Jersey in a way that I think is is not typical for a state legislator. You made the crucial decision to leave the state Senate when you were offered a, a huge job at the Port Authority, effectively executive of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which is, uh, you know, for people who don't know, is well, what's the budget there, Bill? It's bigger than like, most states. It's a huge it's budget. $7 billion. Yeah, yeah. $7 billion. You, you were one of the people overseeing the reconstruction of the Wall, uh, of the World Trade Center, um, of the Oculus, really ground zero. Um, certainly in charge of all the bridges and tunnels and airports in the New York tri-state area, um, New York and New Jersey. Your career was just limitless. And so... You just said what happened from from the day it became a political scandal, but but really, I think what people don't understand is the extent to which you were just a huge figure um, in the New York metropolitan area, and not just that, but the friends that you had, that we all had, um, that were also prominent people, starting with Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey. Um, as well as a lot of his uh, Bill Stepien, who who is uh, who just stepped down as as Donald Trump's campaign manager, and, and a lot of other people. So there was a lot of not just professional but personal tolls that you had to pay as a result of Bridgegate. Th- thank you for saying some of that. You know, 
calling me a political sub celebrity. I'm not sure everybody would think that's a compliment uh, the, um, these days. But I didn't hear anybody giving you the finger when you and I were sitting in that bedroom, Princeton. That never happened, which is rare. It usually happens, but not to you. Um, true. Most people, most people used all five fingers, to paraphrase right. uh, former New Jersey Governor Brendan Byrne. Right. Um, you know, I never wanted to be a politician. You know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a teacher. You know, when I was in third grade, I wanted to be a third grade teacher. When I was in sixth grade, I wanted to be a sixth grade teacher. You know, and I came from a very mixed marriage. You know, my mother uh, was, you know, Irish Catholic Kennedy Democrat. You know, when we would visit her mother's apartment in Inwood in Manhattan, there were three pictures on the wall. It was John F. Kennedy, it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it was Jesus. And I was never sure who the little candles were lit for on any given visit. And my father was a Republican. And so I came from this mixed marriage. My parents would cancel each other's votes out. But when I was in high school, I volunteered and I interned for my local congressman, uh, who's still the congressman from Hamilton, uh, uh, Chris Smith. And that's how I got involved in politics. So when I got out of law school and moved back to Hamilton, um, I eventually was elected, as you said, to the state assembly. And I got elected in a very Democratic district. Um, later, President Obama, for example, would take like 67% of the vote in my district. It was a Democratic district. But I knocked on about 11,000 people's doors. And I was like the guy who just knocked on doors every day and Democratic doors and Republican doors. And I loved it. And that I, was, I, I was able to get elected and reelected and elected to the state Senate. And, you know, I represented my district. I had a district that was overwhelmingly, it was a blue collar, working class district, just like my hometown of Hamilton and um, was able to, to, to stay in office because I worked hard. And I also, you look, I voted sometimes ways that the Republican Party didn't agree with. I mean, I voted for paid family leave. In fact, I was the only Republican in the entire legislature to vote to create a paid family leave program, voted for minimum wage increases. I voted, I cast the deciding vote for medical marijuana, I cast the only vote at the time uh, and the deciding vote for marriage equality, which we now look back on and go, well, that wasn't such a big deal but at the time was a huge deal. And uh, Julie, I know you were there in the legislature that night and it was a, an immense amount of pressure and death threats and all that. But so I was able to get elected, but you know, every once in a while in your political career, moments come up and sure, I can look back on it 10 years later and go, what if I had done something different? But when the new governor of the state comes in and asks you to go run the Port Authority and especially go run the Port Authority with the World Trade and rebuild the World Trade Center. Remember when I came into office into the Port Authority in March of 2010, the day before I started, 60 Minutes did a story, I remember it, calling the World Trade Center one big hole in the ground. And what I had to do with a lot of other people, uh, both in New York and New Jersey, was to change that because we had a 10th year anniversary coming up to get that opened up. And we hit that. So for me, for and, and to rebuild One World Trade or to build One World Trade Center, open the memorial and open the museum uh, and open the transportation hub that you people now. Well, you know, they come from all around the world to see uh, the World Trade Center. That was a career moment. Right. That was something you go into public service for. Not to I didn't go into public service so I could keep on some path that would get me elected to some statewide office. I went to public service to do something. And part of that was paid family leave. And part of that was marriage equality. And part of that was the World Trade Center. And the last seven years have been immensely painful. Julie, just like you were saying, I mean, you know, friends who were friends for years disappeared. Um, life as I knew it changed forever. I went to federal prison 
what was that time like during when you were kind of waiting for something to happen? Because it seems like you were just busy every day before the whole Bridgegate thing happened. So like, what is that time like when you're just kind of waiting for a shoe to drop? Because that must have been just like a weird kind of stop of pace of life for you. Well, for me, after I was gone from the Port Authority, um, a terrific law firm in New Jersey named Hill Wallach uh, was the only organization, entity that at all came to me and offered to employ me. So this was after I was gone from the Port Authority, before I was indicted, which was about a year and a half. And we knew an investigation was going on. It was, you know, we knew the U.S. Attorney's Office was investigating. And every day I was taking the train from my apartment in New York, where I was living when I was at the Port Authority, to Princeton, New Jersey, where the firm was. And every day that train would go through Newark, New Jersey, and you could see the federal building where the where the United States Attorney's Office was. And every day I knew there were United States attorneys, assistant United States attorneys investigating Bridgegate. And so every single day, twice a day, on the way to the office and the way back home uh, to my apartment, you, I knew this was, the weight of that was intense, knowing this was going on. And there were people in my life that I just couldn't speak to. It wasn't I couldn't speak to because they walked away and disappeared and ran ran from me. They literally legally couldn't talk to me. And I which I totally understand, right? There's there's witnesses in a case that, you know, that that can't talk to you during a um during a an investigation and it's 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 an intense amount. Plus and on top of that, it was a case, a political case involving a candidate for president of the United States. Right. You know, people used to say, you know, Bridgegate happened in any other state. It would never have gotten so much attention. But at the center of the story and not talking about the case and the facts, but at the center of the public story was Governor Christie. Right. right? Night after night on television, on radio and the newspapers. I mean, just the fact that it got a name. Right. That it got Bridgegate as a name was it became something that was extraordinary. You know, my my co the person who became my co-defendant, Bridget Kelly, um, who lives in you know a suburban town in Bergen County, New Jersey, you know, had reporters staked out across from her house. Um, you know, my dad at his house down in Hamilton, New Jersey, um, had reporters show up at the house, which was weird for me because at the time my apartment was just a couple of blocks away from CNN and and and, and ABC News and NBC News. I, nobody showed up at my apartment building, but there were you know it was one of these things. I remember one day I came out of my my, the, the apartment I was living in at the time, because when I was the Port Authority, I had to have a place in New York City, as Julie knows. I mean, she helped, you know, we were, you know, helped, get, you know, helped me uh, uh, move to New York, uh, and 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 because I had to, like, you know, if a plane slides off the runway at LaGuardia at two o'clock in the morning or something, you got to be there. So I had this apartment in New York. I remember one day it was probably two or three weeks after Bridgegate really kicked in, and I was coming down to go somewhere. It was I was unemployed. I wasn't working. It was almost like a period of shock. And I see outside the front door of the apartment complex, all these media trucks, all the TV trucks and the, 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 the satellite trucks and the reporters. I thought, oh, my gosh, I knew it. They'd eventually show up. And it wasn't for me. It was there's a New York City police precinct down the block uh, on 54th Street on the west side of Manhattan. And they were there for someone else. right? But that's the feeling you get is like people have abandoned you. Everybody's looking at you. I remember one morning, a Saturday morning, I woke up and I was on the front page of the New York Post. And I remember walking over. I was going to go to the gym 
And I walked out of my apartment and I, you know, walked past the newsstand, you know, the little kiosk. And there's the New York Post. And there I am on the front page of the New York Post. And it's it's one of those moments in life you're like, everything has changed. You know, there's that great, there's that great Irish poet. Um, and, and it, you know, all's changed, changed utterly. And my whole life changed. And it still has changed. Like it's never going back. It's not like there's a magic wand that's gonna say, okay, everything's back to the way it was, you know, in 2010. You know, this is what life happens. This is, but you know, everybody has moments in your life, whether it's a legal case, whether it's a um, a criminal case, whether it's people getting sick, people passing away, and all of a sudden your life just changes. And for me, that's, this is what Bridgegate was. Um, and and I, my life's been through some very difficult times, um, far harder than Bridgegate, quite frankly. Um, and you just, you just get through it, like you just keep going. But what it taught me in the political realm, and Julie, you and I have talked about this a lot, is... You know, when you're in politics day to day and hour to hour and minute to minute, all of a sudden, when you go through something like this, you realize there's a lot of people out there who just need somebody to sort of be there for them and to reach out. And that's one of the things that I've, got, I've, I've learned out of all this is people say, oh, you learn who your friends are. Absolutely true. You learn who your friends aren't. Absolutely true. But you also learn the sort of empathy that comes from this. And as you were saying, Emily, that, that feeling of driving down the, 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 the train and seeing the U.S. Attorney's Office, or I actually remember the morning Governor Christie was sworn into his second term in the middle of everything, middle of bridge, like the, 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 where it was just pervasive newspaper articles every day. The U.S. Attorney's Office had opened his investigation. All the emails had come out. And I had to drive to my attorney, my criminal defense attorney's office out in, in uh, Essex County. And I had rented this little tiny car, like one of these little tiny cars to drive. The only car I could get available to drive out there that morning. And it was a snowy morning. And I remember driving across Route 280 through Newark and coming the other way down 280 was the governor's entourage, like his state police cars, and they were coming, they're coming out of a church service they had had in Newark on the way to Trenton, the swearing in. And I realized what my life had become, that four years earlier, I was sitting at that inauguration as a state senator. And four years later, to the day, I'm in this little tiny mini, it was like one of these Cooper mini cars, driving on a snow-covered road out to my criminal defense lawyer's uh, office in, in uh, Essex County, New Jersey, watching Governor Christie go down to his swearing in. And it was a it was a series of moments in my life that, you know, it really changed everything. You know, I want to touch on what you said about seeing your face um, in the New York Post, because I wonder if you had the same reaction that I did um, the day after I filed my lawsuit against Fox News and Roger Ailes, which coincided ironically when I were going through this around the same time. Um, yours was a little earlier, but um, 2017 was not a good year for any of us. I felt, I remember seeing the New York Times and seeing that story about me and I had paparazzi. Um, I had to go to Fox. I think I've talked about this before, but I had to go to Fox the day after I filed my lawsuit because I was still under contract. Um, and as I'm leaving Fox, um, I hear Julie, Julie, and I see a camera crew running after me, literally shoving their camera in my face. And it was, you know, 
you talked about it being kind of an out of body experience. For me, it was a very lonely experience. I felt very alone in that moment. And I wonder if you felt the same. Um, you were, listen, you're one of my closest friends. You and I talked, I think every day for that period um, that I was going through that, that you were going through Bridgegate. But I also remember that you, there's nothing you could have said to me, or my mother could have said to me, my friends could have said to me. I just felt very alone. And I wonder if that's also a feeling that you had when you saw that New York Post article about yourself or whether you felt something else. You know, it's exactly right. It was a feeling. And it, it, when you're in politics and or in the media and you're doing television every day, right, people recognize you, mm-hmm. right? Well, I remember, Julie, you were talking about our time sitting on the bench in Palmer Square in Princeton, uh, which does feel like a lifetime ago. Yep. But also, I was remember with be, I'd be with you, and we would walk down the street, and people would recognize you from Fox News. Yeah. I mean, there were times you and I would meet for coffee over by the Fox News building, and we'd walk back because we were both living sort of on the west side, and we'd walk back, and people would have just seen you on on television. All of a sudden, that recognition uh, switches. You know, I remember uh, the day of my conviction. So it's November of 2016, that actual day. So I get the jury comes back. It was a Friday. The jury comes back at, I don't know, noon, something like that. Guilty on all counts. The We were on bail and the bail continued through the appeal. So it wasn't like we were being taken away to go to prison. At the little coffee shop in Pennsylvania Railroad Station says to me, you've had a tough day and buys me a coffee. And it taught me something, right? So here's a total stranger has no reason in the world to be nice to me or kind to me at all. Lots and lots of people I'd worked in politics with, who I've helped, who you know worked with, who had lots of reasons to be kind, disappeared. But here's this random guy at the train station who saw me on TV that day, right? And, and it really does show, and it taught me something about empathy and taught me something about, you know, there were times, and you said lonely, I think it's exactly right. There were times... I knew there was things that people couldn't do anything to help. They weren't a criminal defense lawyer. They weren't a member of a jury. You know, all they had to do was reach out. And I don't make, I don't make it sound like it's just me. Anybody who goes through a tough time. I mean, there's a lesson for young people in politics, right? You know, the young people in politics, you go in, they, they make sure you go to wakes, right? So how many, how many wakes I went to when I was in politics? Like every night I would be like, well, Julie, I'll, I got to meet you later. I got to go to a wake, yeah. right? And you, yeah. you go to wake. The message is a, to a young politician is, yes, it's really important to go to wakes and show your support to families. But it's really important to go to things before their wake and to be there for people before their wake. Um, and just read. So one of the things I found, and I also experienced it when I was in prison, one of the things I found is that's really a lesson that I got out of it. But the going back to your question about loneliness, it's a really, it's a really dark time when you are going through something like this. Um, and having the, the, the basis of your life, your friends, your family, your self-image, the way you look at yourself, all of it changes almost overnight. And it's very difficult. And, um, and, and, uh, it, it affects everybody. It affects your friends. It affects your family. I mean, my, my poor dad and stepmom, I mean, they have to live this too. Julie, your family lived it and the, and the people closest to you lived it when you were going through it. And, and it's hard. Let me tell you, for me, seeing my father sit in the front row of a federal courthouse for years, day after day, watching his son go on trial, watching people say things about his son, um, watching a jury convict his son, 
Um, I, 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 of all the things I regret, that's what I regret is my father had to sit through that. My father who's, has, has been through far too much for any person, um, sort of Job, uh, um, had to sit through that was just awful. Absolutely awful. And I would venture, and you and I have never discussed this, but I would venture to say that prison itself was probably less tough than that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and not to minimize how difficult prison is. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I made a decision in November of 2018. So we were convicted in November of 16. And by the time the Court of Appeals, which is the level of court between the, the trial court and the Supreme Court, they reviewed our case. They threw out half the charges, but kept half the charges. And I remember getting up that morning. It was the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, 2018. Court of Appeals just puts their opinion out on the Internet. You never know. Unlike the Supreme Court, you have no idea when they would come out. We get the opinion about 8 o'clock in the morning. And I had to make the decision of what to do. And, you know, I have older parents. You know, my, my dad and stepmom are in their 70s. I'm going to be one of the people who takes care of them. And I made the decision at 8 o'clock in the morning to go in and get this over with keep the Supreme Court appeal going, but I just had to get back for my family. I mean, somebody was got to take care of these folks, right? And they've been through enough. It was time to draw a line under it and say, okay, let's get this over with. So we knew the sentence would likely come down because we had to go back and get resentenced. And I made the decision with my lawyers. I remember driving to Hamilton, New Jersey that day. I called dad, told him what happened, uh, went down to Hamilton, went to the Outback Steakhouse in Hamilton, New Jersey. And we had uh, dinner at the Outback Steakhouse. Nope. Well, right there on Route 130 by the Home Depot. Uh, <laughs> yep. And it's true. It's true in the parking lot of the Home Depot. And uh, we talked about it. And I said, it's time to get this over with. Um, and uh, decided to go in. You know, Bridget, uh, who had young kids, has young kids, she had a different calculation. She wanted to stay out as long as possible. Uh, I wanted to get this over with. So I told my my lawyers, I said, look, I want to go in. Let's get this over with. Let's keep the Supreme Court appeal going. But look, the odds of the Supreme Court taking any one particular case are one in 10,000. I mean, it's, they take so few. They're now taking less than 100 cases most years. Um, and I said, let's go in and get it over with. Uh, that was a tough decision. Um, and then and as we got closer to April 9th, which is the date that I had to report to prison, it got really hard. And the night before I went in, I was going to Loretto, Pennsylvania. I was sentenced to, I was assigned to a prison about four hours west of Hamilton uh, in Loretto, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. It's a, it's, it's both a, a, what they call a low security prison, which is a real prison behind about a thousand inmates uh, locked in behind, behind uh, fences and guards and guard towers. And, and then Paul next Manafort, to it. Right, Bill? Paul Manafort was there at the same time you were? Uh, correct. He came in just shortly after I was there, but he went to the to the low. I was in this little camp. They call them satellite minimum camp. So it's below a low when it comes to security. And it's outside the fences. And at the time I was there, it was about 80 people, 80, 80, 80 guys. Um, and I remember that morning, you know, I got up like 3 a.m. I'd been up very late the night before. It was a very, it was an odd moment. I was in my the bedroom I grew up in as a kid, stayed at dad's house. I remember, Julie, I saw you that morning. Yeah. That Monday morning before I went down, we had coffee that morning, got on the train, went down. And that was the night the University of Virginia, which is where I'd gone to law school, was in the national championship for basketball. That normally I would have been at either at the game or at some big celebration watching the game at a bar or something. 
Um, and instead, I was sitting uh, at my house that I grew up in with my dad, uh, watching the UVA basketball game, which was an interesting moment for me. It was like, what was really most important, right? It was, you know, that should have been what I was doing anyway. Forget going to prison. I should have been sitting there with my father watching the UVA basketball game. But normally, I, my life would have been, you know, fast and going, going to a bar, going to a party. But there I am the night before going to prison. I'm with my dad on the couch watching the UVA game. It went late. Um, and I got up a couple hours later, and one of my closest friends in the world, who Julie knows very well, John Holub. Um, and John Holub is one of those people that if you don't have a John Holub in your life, you need to go find one. You know, and, you know, my roommates, when I lived in Hamilton for a while before I went to the legislature, uh, John Holub and Todd Riffle. Um, who are two of the most loyal people in your life. And if you, again, if you don't have those people, you need to find them, especially if you're in politics. Um, and John picked me up at, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning, something like that, and drove me all the way to Loretto, Pennsylvania. We drove across the Pennsylvania Turnpike. We stopped at the Starbucks, uh, and I had my last Starbucks. And we arrived April 9th. And, you, you know, you, on the way there, I, I called, you know, called people very early in the morning and said goodbye. And it was very hard because there were people that I didn't know if I was ever going to see again. Right. My biggest fear going into prison was not would I be safe? Would I, you know, would I have a, a safety issue? Would I be beaten up? None of that. Uh, 18 months. You know, what happened? Something happened to my father. He twisted his ankle. Who's going to be there to help him? And, and so I'm walking. I get to the get to Loretto that morning. And there you are I'm outside this in it. You pull in the parking lot. It's a real prison. Like it doesn't look like a prison camp. Like it's a, because the camp is next to it. And it, you, it is a real prison. And I remember walking in, standing there and I said goodbye to John. And I'm standing outside the door and it's got a big sign of you know, federal correctional institution, FCI Loretto. And you push the button. It's like a doorbell. Like you push this button and you get buzzed in. And I knew at that moment standing there and I thought, how did life get to this point? What, what events, what series of events? I knew the answer logically, but emotionally, it's like what series of events took place and decisions that I made, that other people made, wrong decisions, right decisions, um, led to this moment? that I was about to walk into federal prison. Back to Julie, what you were saying, you have this moment on the drive there and stay, you know, say goodbye to John. Um, and all the things that, all the votes in the legislature, the, time, the campaigning, going to the Port Authority, all these things that sort of what if, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? What if I had said this? What if I had, and I had lots of advice from people about you just gotta put all that behind you. Take all those bricks, all the anger, all the betrayal, all the, and put it, Put it, put it down. And I buzzed and I walked in and I had, I mean, to me, that was the start of an 18 year, 18 years, so gosh, 18 month sentence. And I walked into federal prison. So after everything that happened, that was this moment I walked into federal prison and I didn't have a feel. I wasn't scared. I, it was a more a feeling of determination. It was the same feeling I had when I decided to go in. It's like, okay, we need to get this over. It's like anything bad you have to do. Like, let's just get this over. with. No, no anticipation the Supreme Court was going to take the case. No view that that was going to happen. I was going into federal prison. And it started, you know, it began right there. And, and what I learned from my time in prison actually started at that moment. Like you, 
terrible things happen. And for me, the terrible thing that happened was I was going to federal prison for 18 months, but it gave me a lot of empathy. And I wish I had more of this when I was in politics, uh, in elected office, in, in, in a high appointed office. I wish I had more empathy because lots of people that I met in prison, um, I'll tell you, and, and I, I will take many of the people I met in prison over many of the people I ever worked in politics with. I don't even know the people you met in prison, and I would second that, having worked in politics. Um, you know, not to get too existential, but shortly before you took the job at the Port Authority, when it was offered to you, but you were still in the state Senate, you and I and a, and a few friends went to London together. Um, and we had really, you and I spent that weekend um, because I, the friends who we were with weren't really clued in on, on the fact that you'd been offered this job discussing whether you should take it or not. And ultimately you flew back early, I think, to to be at the announcement with Governor Christie um, when he announced your appointment. But we always talk about that trip as, was that the beginning of the end or was that the end of the beginning? This is what, listen, as, as many people may not know this, uh, my last name is Baroni, but I'm Irish and I'm an Irish citizen. This is the message, don't go to London. I mean, that's sort of like, <laughs> this is what happens when the Irish guy goes to London, right? The whole, all, everything. You know, yeah, I look back on that moment and I say, oh my gosh, was that the wrong decision? Should was, we... it, was it the beginning of the end, Bill, or the end of the beginning? We never de we never decided. What was it? I'm not sure it's either. And, and I'll tell you, there was a long time I thought that was the end of the beginning, to, you know, to paraphrase, you know, Prime Minister Churchill. Um, but I don't know if I agree with that anymore. Really? Yeah. It was a, yeah, I'll tell you why. It, it, it was a key moment, right? I certainly look back on the moment, as a lot of other moments I look back on in this journey that, oh my gosh, if I had just made a different decision, we used to joke, if I had just stayed in London, yeah, not taking the job of the Port Authority and not gone to the Port Authority and not, therefore, Bridgegate for me wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been involved in that. And maybe I'd still be in the legislature and life would be, but life would be very different. There's no question. If I had stayed not taking the job of the Port Authority, it'd be very different. But Lord knows what would have happened. There are enormous regrets that I have over the last 10 years, but there's enormous things that I look at, you know, every time I go past the World Trade Center, I go, okay, I did that, or I was one of the people who did that. Every time I see the Bayonne Bridge and see that the Bayonne Bridge was raised, and now lots of people have jobs in the port, I did that. You know, I was one of the people who did that. Um, but sure, I have lots of, I look back on that trip and I think, you know, maybe if we had just had one more day of wonderful food on Brick Lane in, 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 in London, right? And you know, if I just stayed there. But that's one of the things you learn. And one of the things I do for people now is they're getting ready to go into prison. You can't you have to put those bricks down because they'll kill you in prison. You are far more at risk in prison of getting killed by a brick that you're carrying around of anger and betrayal and hurt than you are from anyone hurting you. You know, if I had spent every day that I was in Loretto walking around the prison, you know, walking around the track, which I walked countless times you know, angry at this person or angry at that person or regretting this or questioning that you can't, you can't live that way. And that's another one of the lessons I learned when I was in prison is that you can't, yeah, mistakes happen and, and decisions happen. And, and sure, you could look back and go, what if I did this or what if I did that? But then, you know, life wouldn't be where it is today. And I'm, listen, I am a better person today for having been through what I went through a better person. My career is very different. You know, I lost my law license for quite a while. Um, you know, I lost lots of things. I lost a political career that I liked and did really good at. But 
At the same time, I'm closer to my family than I ever was before. I'm a better friend than I ever was before. I'm more present than I was before. Because I was one of these political people. I think a lot of people in politics are this. And this is another lesson for young people in politics, right? It was always, what's the next thing? I used to joke, like, you know, I have 17 stops tonight. I got this. I got the West Windsor Lions Club. I've got the South Brunswick Kiwanis Club. I've got the Monroe Township this. I've got the Hamilton that. It was always something, always running. And that's what you do in politics, right? But in some ways, I wasn't present enough. It was always something else. And now, and when you go through this, all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting in your bunk in federal prison and you're like, okay, you know, and one of the things that I did learn, and you like the joke, you learn who your friends are. You know, one of the things that's really important in prison, if you don't mind me telling the story, you know, one of the things that's really important in prison, you learn who your friends are, um, it, people who email, people who write, people who visit. And that there were people who wrote me every day. I have a friend here in the city um, who's very active in the adoption community, uh, runs an adoption nonprofit. She started an adoption nonprofit that I volunteered for and did, did some work with. Because, because you're adopted. People don't know that you were adopted. Adopted at birth, being Irish. I was adopted at birth. And um, she wrote me every day in prison. As her kids would sit and do their homework, she's got two kids, sit and do their homework, she would write me a letter. I'd get letters every day on like, le like kid letterhead paper. Um, just, you know, what her day was like. Um, and that was really important. And people say, you know, people, especially people in politics, and I made this mistake once, like, you know, uh, people as I, somebody who was sentenced to a white collar crime, who I knew when I was in office, asked me to write a letter on their behalf to the judge. And I said, no. And I regret that ever since. Regret it because I should have. Showing mercy to people is not weakness. And, and that's one of the things I learned in politics. But I was talking about visits. You know, so visits are really important in prison. And, and again, there's a little bit 80 people where I was. And I would say at least half the guys I was in Loretto with, good people who made decisions. We all made decisions we regret. But, you know, these are guys who are in prison, some for a long time, had no visits. Their family had stopped talking to them. They had no visitors. I was in prison about a week and a half. So I got in April 9th. So about a week and a half later, your immediate family, your parents, your spouse and your kids, if you have if you're married and have kids, um, can come visit almost right away. So that first, it was about the first, second Saturday I was in prison, dad and June from Hamilton, New Jersey, are going to come visit their son in federal prison. So they're going to drive out from Hamilton to Loretto, Pennsylvania. They talked to one of my closest friends uh, who gave them, Andrew Hawthorne, who gave them the directions and what they could wear and what they could, you could bring some change for the vending machines, but you can't bring, wear a watch and you can't have your phone and all these rules. Fine. So they get out there the Friday night. I talked to dad in June that Friday night. And I um, I say, don't forget to get here. You got to get here by about 8.15 because they open the doors at 8.30. And then we can spend from 8.30 to 2.30 together visiting. Great. My father is very prompt, guys. Always on time. We'll be there at 8.15. And I said to him, but remember, Pop, at 9.30, if you're not with me in the visiting room, they shut the whole prison down to count everybody. So if you're not with me, they send me back to the bunk to be counted. And they shut the prison for now. Oh, we'll be there. So, okay. The next morning, I get up. Put on my green prison uniform, my my black prison boots, and I'm waiting to get called into the visiting room. 8.30 comes around, 8.45. Other people are being called in the visiting room as their family arrives. I'm starting to get nervous. My father's never late. 8.50, 9 o'clock. Now, for the first I've been in federal prison for a week and a half. I've had no real stress for a week and a half. All of a sudden, all those fears that I had of what, what if something happened to dad? All of them came at once. What if there was an accident? They got lost. Something happened at the hotel. Somebody's in the hospital. 
and I can't do anything about it. I can't, I, they can't call me. Uh, they can't get to me. I was in full panic. And the, one of the guys in the bunk next to me who became one of my closest, still is one of my closest friends, a guy named Bear. His nickname was, we all had nicknames. His nickname was Bear. And he, uh, he'd been in prison for almost 30 years for marijuana distribution. Think about that. 30 year sentence for marijuana distribution. He's now out. Thank goodness. And he said, are you okay? I was like, no, my dad, 930 comes around. That's it. They've shut the visiting down for an hour. I'm in full panic. I go over and we have to go for the count in a few minutes. So I go over and pick the phone, the prison phone up to call my father. And I call his cell phone and my father answers the phone. He said, hey, bud. I'm like, hey, pop, um, where are you? He said, we're in the parking lot. Pop, what are you doing in the parking lot? He said, well, when we got here, they did shut the prison down. I said, what do you mean they shut the prison down? I thought you were getting here at 830. He said, oh, yeah, well, when we came downstairs this morning, they were staying at the courtyard by Marriott in Altoona, Pennsylvania. He said, oh, we came downstairs this morning to come over to the prison. You know, they have a free breakfast buffet. And I said, OK, Pop, your son's in prison. He said, but he said, but it came with the room, which <laughs> which is what every 70 something year old dad would say at that moment. And I realized at that moment, my father was going to be fine with his son in prison. And, it, but, you know, but he comes to visit. So eventually, you know, an hour later, they come in, they come to visit and I walk into the visiting room and it's one of those, it's another one of those moments, right? Where your father, my dad, Bill Sr. And my stepmom, June, who's wonderful, are sitting in a prison visiting room. It's not behind, at a camp, it's not behind glass or with a phone or anything like that, but sitting in a prison visiting room, surrounded by other inmates, and their son in a prison uniform comes walking in. And I could see the look of fear and trepidation on my father's face. Now, one of the great things about, great if you could say that, one of the things about prison, for the new guys, other guys who've been in prison for a while will come over and say hello to your family. So some of the other guys who were in Loretto with me came over and said, oh, Billy's doing fine. You know, he's doing he's doing fine. And I could see my father become more relaxed during the visit. So he left much more. He knew his son was going to be OK. But it is heartbreaking to have to see your father sit there and see their kid in federal prison. What's now, the my father, Julie knows my dad, my father, by the but he visited two or three more times. But his last visit was the day after the Supreme Court took the case. And so it was a Saturday, they came to visit. I knew I was getting out. I didn't know if I was getting out Sunday or Monday because the government had agreed that I should get bail pending the Supreme Court decision. So it was a very different visit. We're sitting there on these picnic tables outside. I have this great picture uh, of that moment. And my father, um, my father says, you know, the only downside of all this I said, downside. He said, the only downside of you getting out is we never got to visit the 9-11 muse uh, memorial at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, which is only a few miles away from the prison. He said, we never got to go there because you're getting out. I was like, Pop, would you like me to stay? I mean, I could call the judge up and see, you know, just stay a couple of extra weeks so you could go to the visitor center at the at the memorial. You know, it, it, your, your your parents are, my dad is very, June are very resilient, yeah. but that's the hardest part of all this. But by the way, by the way, Julie, it has nothing to do with going to prison family members of people in politics. It's hard on them. At, at some level, it's like, how many people have we all worked, and Emily, how many people have we all worked in politics with who, you know, they ne they're never home at night or they miss their, how many times have you heard somebody retire in politics and say, you know, I never got to see my kids grow up or I never got to, you know, or their, 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 their marriage falls apart, right? Or they, they prioritize everything above their family. Uh, and I, I'm, I mean, I, I didn't have all those factors, obviously, but, you know, there I look back on it and that's one of my regrets is, you know, 
my family wasn't, my friends weren't the first place in, in a lot of times when you're in politics. You know, we taught, you talked, you had alluded to before about letting go of bricks. What was the toughest brick to let go of? I know what it was for me, um, but I'm curious if it was the same for you. For me, was the, for me was the deep friendships that you thought you had um, that turns out you did not have. Um, and, you know, when something really awful happens to you, as you said, you realize who your friends are. Um, you know, I still mourn those relationships. I still mourn those friendships of these people that I had years of good times with um, that are no longer people that I like or trust or, or, you know, people that you just realize were in it with you for the good times, but not really for the bad times, despite the fact that you assumed that they would be. Is that, that for me is the toughest break. Is that for you? Sure. I mean, it, without going into details of the case, betrayal is one of the hardest bricks to put down. And I think, I think you and I are saying the same thing that people you just thought were just, they weren't your friends because of politics. They weren't your friends because you had a job they weren't your friends because you'd worked in, they were your friends. They were the people who, the good people, people like John Hollow. Yeah. Like, who just were there. It, it, you know, it, it didn't matter. They were your friend before anything else, right? Todd Riffle, your friend before anything else. Then there are others who you thought was that was a category uh, and aren't. But, remember, you know, there's a great movie that, that was out in the late 90s uh, called True Colors. James Spader, John Cusack. It was actually the movie that caused me to fall in love with the University of Virginia Law School because it's filmed in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. Um, and when I remember seeing that movie going, that's where I want to go to law school. That's a beautiful school. I want to apply there. There's a line in the movie where um, the, the older senator uh, says to the young upstart that friendship, and I'm going to somewhat paraphrase it, but uh, friendship is like the morning dew. Sometimes it lands on green grass and sometimes it lands on dog poop. And the, the tough part is, is learning and finding that out. And that, that was the, that's the brick that's the hardest. The, 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 that, uh, because you can, you can always have regrets of decisions. I wish I'd done this. I wish I had not done that. But when you have people in your life that you just thought were always going to be there. But then, honestly, Julie, it, it's really hard. That's a tough brick to put down. Really tough. It's a heavy brick to put down. But when you put it down, you put it and you just say, you know what, that's these are people you don't want to see again. You learn their 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 true colors to, again, use the phrase true colors. Um, but then you find other people that you never imagined would be people that you would be close to. And not only people who showed up when you were going through your difficulties, but for me, people I served in prison with. There are people who I served in, in federal prison with who did things and admitted things who are just, you know, folks that I really you know, have grown very close to. Um, and, you know, so life is long. And, and, and but I, my suggestion to people in politics is make sure you have those people in your life that don't care what your title is, that, that are only in it because they're your friend. They're only in it because they want to be your friend. And you not only need to have those people in your life, you need to be that person in your life. Like you need to be the person that, you know, I don't care what councilman this or assemblywoman that or candidate this. I don't care. I don't care. I'm their friend. You want to have the friend that's going to hold your hand when you're in the hospital. You want to have the friend that's going to show up when you give birth to your kid. You want to have the friend that's going to be there when you go to prison. And you're going to meet these people in politics, but make sure that you know the difference between a real friend 
who's going to be that and being a real friend for people and people who are just there because you have a title or can give them a job or you give them responsibility. Um, because quite frankly, they're going to disappear immediately. Like just like you pick up dog poop, they're going to disappear immediately. So we don't have much time left and I don't want to end on a sad note. I want to end on a happy note, which is, uh, the Supreme Court obviously did in a unanimous decision, which I don't remember the last time they had a unanimous decision about anything, um, overturn your conviction, effectively as though the last seven years, eight years had not happened, which is surreal and something that I think none of us could even dare to hope. Um, what was that like? What was it like being in the Supreme Court in the United States, watching people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and... Um, John Roberts decide Bill Baroni's fate. Like you're, uh, you know, we talked about how prominent you were in politics and in government, but the reality is you're still Bill Baroni from Hamilton, New Jersey. I mean, how that must have been both awesome in, in the real sense of the word awesome, um, and overwhelming. And and what what was it? It really was overwhelming. I mean, and you know, I practiced law for a while. I had argued cases in the state supreme court. Um, I, you know been in, I went to college in Washington. I, you know, sat in an argument in the Supreme Court at one point. But, you know, when you're a lawyer and you did constitutional law, I mean, I, this is what I taught. Um, I never imagined my first appearance in the Supreme Court would be as a defendant. And, you know, there's that moment in the morning. So my family all and friends all went down, you know, friends from Hamilton, my, my aunt that I talk about from, from Washington, D.C., and my cousin, they came. People came in from Texas, came in from Illinois, came in from California to be there. They stood in line at 6 o'clock in the morning to line up to go. I have friends from here in New York who took time off of work to go down. Of course, I think some of my friends really just wanted to see Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm not sure they were so much excited yeah. to see me, but they wanted to see Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And to walk, I remember the feeling of walking in the Supreme Court of the United States. You walk in and it's the, there, there is an enormity to it. It is it is a it is a legal civic version of a temple or a church or a synagogue. I mean, it's this moment. And to sit there and watch the justices and we felt very good about the case, right? They weren't going to take the case if they were just going to uphold our convictions. So we felt good going in. We felt very good coming out. Um, but yeah, you're seeing, you know, seeing Justice, you know, late Justice Ginsburg, you know, seeing Justice Alito, from, Justice Alito from Hamilton, New Jersey, from the same high school I went to, um, who had been at the U.S. Attorney's Office that, that prosecuted me, obviously many years before, asked questions about Bill Barone, you know, and, and hearing, you know, Justice Sotomayor, and hear, but it, it is it is humbling at that moment, like okay, this is where life, the the, the life that began with Bridgegate, but really. That day, April 9th, you know, April 9th, pushing the button, April 9th, 2019, pushing the button at Loretto Federal Prison, you know, January of 2020, before coronavirus, before the Supreme Court stopped having in-person arguments, only by a few weeks, um, sitting there watching the justices of the Supreme Court, liberal justices, conservative justices, um, hear your case. That's a moment like that. That's a life moment. Um, and I, you know, as I say to young lawyers uh, that I think that's. That's why you go into law, not to be the defendant, but to be one of those lawyers sitting up there making that argument. Um, you know, I joke about it. You know, my when, one of the things that happened in the in the case, talk about people running towards me, people, a, a woman who I was dorm mates with was in the next room over from me, my freshman year at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., Palmina Fava. Um, 
she came on, she brought her big New York firm on board my case, pro bono. The guy who I sat next to at the University of Virginia Law School at orientation, you know that first day in law school was sometimes, not at UVA, but other law schools where the dean says, look to your right, look to your left. One of you won't be here when the, when it, at the end of law school. Well, UVA, look to your right, look to your left. And one of you is going to defend the other in the United States Supreme Court. So Mike Levy, my, from the first day of law school at UVA, uh, became my Supreme Court lawyer and got to argue his first ever Supreme Court, amazing lawyer uh, and terrific firm, Sidley and Austin, uh, argued the first his first ever Supreme Court case for a guy he sat next to in law school. Right. Friends do show up. Yeah. People do show up at difficult times. And the, the message to young people in law and politics is be that person. You know, be the person who shows up for a friend at that moment. So anyway, so then the Supreme Court hears the argument. It goes by lightning fast. It's an hour and it really is an hour. Like it's it's incredible. And we walked out and we walked out to this bank of microphones. You know, Mike speaks and then I speak. And uh, and it was one of those moments that, you know, when you're sort of a Supreme Court lawyer, junkie, um, not only did you see Justice Ginsburg and Chief Justice Roberts, I come downstairs and who's the reporter standing right next to the microphone, but Nina Totenberg. And if, it, it, and if, you'll, if you follow the Supreme Court, she, she's Nina Totenberg. Yeah. And I'm looking at her and she, 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 asked, she wanted to ask me a question and my, and my lawyer's like, you can't answer any questions. So I looked at her and she asked me a question. I said, there's no one in the world I'd like to answer a question more than Nina Totenberg, but they're not letting me. And she laughed and I left. And then a few months later, it was May in the middle of coronavirus, right? So everything that took. So January, we have the argument. You never know when the Supreme Court's going to put the decision out. We knew it before the end of June, it would happen. We didn't know what day. So every day I'd get up and sit at my computer in my apartment in the middle of Corona time, right? In the middle of lockdown and check Mondays, Thursdays, because you knew when they, when they put some decisions out, you just didn't know when they're going to put your decision out. So I remember that morning, uh, May 7th, getting up, you know, the decisions come out at 10 o'clock, sitting at the computer. You have no heads up. Not like you get an email that your decision's coming out. You don't get a couple of minutes notice. You don't get it in advance. You just get it like the rest of the world does. I'm sitting, clicking, reloading on the computer. And the decision came out and it was unanimous. And Justice Kagan uh, wrote a decision. And again, Julie, like you were saying, to, to have a decision in a po high profile political case that began seven years earlier as a really high profile political case involving somebody who was running for president of the United States or someone who's in the middle of the case, involving people who've been elected officials and appointed officials at an, at an agency which was the biggest transportation agency in the world, in a case that got worldwide attention. I had friends and family in Ireland who were reading about the case every day in the Irish Independent. Then all of a sudden, the Supreme Court of the United States unanimously, the most liberal justices and the most conservative justices, write a decision that says you were wrongly prosecuted. It's a moment. It's like another one of those moments in your life. Like, wow. And I remember getting the decision. I'm reading the decision, looking at it. And I call Mike Levy, my lawyer up. And he said, I think we won this outright. And I said, yeah, I think so, too. And I then you get very emotional. And oh, seven years of emotion come up. And I remember my first phone call. Uh, I called my father and I knew they weren't home. They were visiting uh, my stepmother's sister. And I called my father's cell phone. The Shanksville Memorial Bill. They were driving back to Shanksville to check out. <laughs> They're at the, they were still at the breakfast buffet in Loretto. Um, I called my father on his cell phone. And, he, and I had told him that you know, the next day could be a decision. It would come out at 10 o'clock. I call him at 10, cell phone, and it goes to voicemail. My father didn't take the call. Um, and so I called June's cell phone, my stepmother. And she answers. And I said, put dad on the phone. And at that moment, when I said that, 
that's when I got really emotional. That's when I lost it. So I got very emotional. I was very upset, not upset, but I was very overwhelmed. And because of that, I couldn't, I couldn't talk right away, which anybody who knows me realizes that that's a big moment. And and my father is hearing me like this and he thought we lost. Wow. Right. And it took me, you know, whatever, probably eight seconds, but it felt like a lifetime to tell my father that we won and we won unanimously. And, and then the rest of the day is like a blur. And I called Julie that we'd won and Julie knew, I mean, it was all, all over the news and we'd won. And I was like, wow, that's a moment. And it was this, it, it was one of two moments I look back on. So winning the Supreme Court decision, tell, got to tell my father who got very emotional. Of course, my father's now the biggest Elena Kagan fan. You know, it's all of it. He tells every, he tells all the guys at the barber shop in Hamilton Square, New Jersey. My son got, Bar, uh, Justice K, my father became an expert on the Supreme Court. He's talking about Justice Breyer's questioning style. He's talking about Justice Kagan. <laughs> Justice, Kagan. Justice Kagan, who maybe may or may not be listening to this broadcast, to this podcast. <laughs> You know, my father's a big fan, um, but it reminded me of another moment. And I know time's short, but I'll tell a very quick story. So when I got out of prison, so the Supreme Court took the case on a Friday. Uh, the, my lawyers and the government worked on the, throughout the weekend. I give the government lawyers a lot of credit. They immediately agreed to get me out of prison pending the end of the Supreme Court. And Bridget had never gone into prison. And it was a Monday and I got out. And John Holub had driven... Again, have John Holub in your life, right? Because he's the guy that the day I was get, maybe getting out, we thought it was going to be Monday. That morning, he just got in his car and drove back to Loretto. Just sat in Altoona, Pennsylvania, waiting for me. Didn't know when I was getting out to say, he said, I was going to wait until you got out. So I get out, I'm ready to get out. And I said to the to the guy, the, to the sergeant at the prison, about, about to get out of prison. I didn't have a change of clothes. I had nothing. I was getting out of prison a year early. I'm walking out of prison in the prison-like gray outfit that you'd wear during the day. Of course, I was very worried when I went to the Starbucks on the Pennsylvania Turnpike that somebody was thinking I broke out of prison because I literally looked like a prisoner. So I'm, John's picking me up. And I said to the guy about to leave, I was like, hey, I just need my driver's license back. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, he said, well, when I said to him, I said, when I checked in, I gave you my driver's license. And I was told you'd give me my driver's license back when I got out. And he looks in the file and there's no driver's license. He said, I don't have it. He said, you can stay. I was like, no, no, I'll leave. So I leave. And the next day I had to go back to DMV, what do they call it now? MVC in New Jersey to get a new driver's license. But I didn't have an old driver's license. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have my passport. I had, you know, I had a birth certificate, right? I couldn't find my social security card because everything had been packed away in my apartment when I left. So I got on the train, come back to Hamilton. Dad and June pick me up. I go over to MVC. It's the morning after I've gotten out of prison. I get, I go to M, uh, right there in Lawrenceville, get in line, get to the front of line number nine. I remember it very clearly. And, um, and I, I had an old expired driver's license and an old expired passport and I with a hole in it. And I hand it to the, the woman behind the counter. Um, and she's probably been working in motor vehicles for years. She doesn't even look up. Doesn't even look up. And I hand her the stuff and she doesn't even look. And she says, I can't accept these. And I look down on her desk and there's a copy of the Trentonian newspaper, the Trentonian daily newspaper. And I'm on the front page. And I sort of look down the paper and she looks up and she sort of tilts her head and she says, oh, so when do you think you'll get your passport back? And I said, I don't, I don't know. And she said, you don't know me. And she says, give me your credit card. And, and she, she said, you don't know me, but I'm from Hamilton. And I voted for you. 
And she said, I voted for you every time. And I just want you to know you're going to be okay. There are lots of people around here. We believe you. And it's going to be okay. And she says, I know you I know you, you go to church and I go to St. Gregory, St. Gregory the Great, which is my parish in, in Hamilton. She said, she said, I know you go to church. You just need to believe things happen for a reason. And she, now I'm getting emotional. It's like all the emotion for the last four days of getting the Supreme Court, getting dad in June, coming, coming home, John picking me up, getting to Hamilton. All of it's coming at this moment. So she gives me the new driver's license and she grabs my hands from across the counter. She says, you be strong. It's going to be OK. You got to be strong. She said, can I come give you a hug? So, he, so she comes. I said, sure. She comes out from behind the counter. And all, all the you know, MVs, people running around, comes out from behind the counter and she gives me this big hug and she says, it's going to be OK. And that was when I got very, I mean, very emotional. I'm sure I'm not the first person to cry at MVC, but probably for different reasons. Was this Baker's Basin? Yes, exactly right. I, I, I failed my permit license there, so I cried at that MVC. Yeah, yeah, everyone does. 1990, just, just for the record. And it, but it, it told me that there really are people out there, no matter... The morning with the New York Post with your baseball with my baseball hat on, Julie, you walking down the street, you know, people, you know, people during your during anyone who goes through tough times. And even though there's political people who disappear on you, which is just true, there's lots of people that are out there pulling for you. And this woman who I'd never met before, she told me she said I never knocked on her door. Uh, although she remembered I knocked on lots of doors, but she told me she voted for me and that it was going to be okay. And I don't even know her name. I never got her name. And it taught me one of the many lessons I learned in the last year, six, seven years, is that you look out for those people. Be that person. Be the woman behind the counter. Don't be the politician who just goes to people's wakes and is not present in people's lives. Like, be that person. Be the one that when you see someone, Julie, going through a case like you did, going through a criminal thing, going through a family loss, going through health loss. Be that kind of politician that reaches out to those people. A, it makes you a better politician, quite frankly. You'll do better as an election candidate, but it makes you a better person. Don't go through seven years of losing your job, being investigated, put on trial, having a jury sit there and convict you, going to prison, going to the Supreme Court. Don't go through all that to learn the lesson that I, that I learned from the woman behind the counter at the MVC. Um, you don't have to. One last, one last question, because I know we all have to jump. Um, since you have now turned a new leaf and are a better person, as you know, you have banned me for life, I believe, from University of Virginia football games, because apparently I am a bad omen for the UVA football team, which, as far as I could tell, didn't really need me to, to, to perform poorly. But nevertheless, you blamed it all on me. So hurtful. I would like, to, I would like to know... Now that you have been to the depths of hell and now are, again, risen to the top of the mountain, whether you will forgive me for being a bad penny, and am, am I now allowed back in Charlottesville, Virginia, to go to UVA football games with you? Well, first of all, it is clearly unfair for me to come on, for you to have me, to drag me on to this wonderful podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and use use my legal case as a pretense, a pretense, just to get permission to come back to the University of Virginia football game. Um, yeah. So the answer to the question is, Julie, you are now welcome. We had a meeting. Wow. Uh, we had a meeting. You are now welcome to return to UVA football games. 
You and the really weird mascot, you guys had the meeting? I'm not sure that the calling the Cavaliers uh, <laughs> is a weird mascot. Uh, where did you go to school? I think you know, Terriers, right? You guys are Terriers. Terriers, but I don't pretend to. Uh, I think my te- my school doesn't even have football anymore. But okay. you have to admit, having a guy dressed up like a um, Thomas Jefferson figure waving a sword around on horseback riding onto a football field is it is a tad unusual, I would say. But But maybe not. Maybe it's a Southern thing. I just don't know. I, I just think that, first of all, there are many, many people listening to this, to Emily's terrific podcast, uh, that um, are fans of Mr. Jefferson's university. Um, uh, but, but Julie, here's the thing. You are welcome back to the University of Virginia football games. Can I sit with you? You can sit with me in, in my seats there that I have kept going, even even when I even when I was going to Loretto and didn't get to go to any games. Uh, hey. uh, up. I, you were welcome to come back. I just please when the when when the, the the Cavaliers come on the field, you need to root for the Cavaliers. Always root for the Cavaliers. That's Always. gonna be. Um, but yes, you are welcome to come back uh, to to UVA football, uh, and God willing, the Cavaliers will. Um, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's funny. You know, we, we were joking about UVA football, but I have to I have to put a pitch in here, is that my class at UVA, class of 1998 of the law school UVA, I had. Uh, Mike Levy, obviously, who came on board as my appellate counsel, um, uh, and I had lawyers who, and people in my class wrote letters to the judge for me. Lisa Lisa Moore, who I went to law school with, came on board and helped prep me for the trial. She came on board pro bono. Well, and, you know, dozens of my friends from law school, people really gathered around and helped. Um, and, and it's one of the many, many reasons I love law school, including faculty members of the law school who reached out. People who I worked in politics with for 30 years disappeared. Professors I had had 20 years before and had two classes with reached out almost immediately. People when they were in New York, they, you know, they, you'll be surprised. And it's not just UVA. It is UVA. It's not just UVA. It's not just this amazing law school at the University of Virginia. But you'll be surprised. You know, people who will disappear, you'll be stunned that certain people in your life when you go through something hard disappear. But you will be equally stunned and gratified that people some people like firefighters, some people run away and some people run towards. And, and I was very blessed to have friends that ran towards me and I had people at the law school who ran towards me, people in college ran towards me. Um, but we met, all of us, all of us, University of Virginia people, we met and decided uh, that, Julie, you can you were welcome back on the grounds at uh, at UVA to football. And God willing, uh, at the end, hopefully this season, uh, as a result, the coronavirus will allow fans back in the stands. Most important is with all those fans have been, we all get vaccinated quickly, we hope. Uh, but yes, so we, you can come back to UVA uh, now that you have, uh, much as I had to pay seven years of penance uh, for uh, everything that happened, you, you, have, you clearly should come back to UVA um, and see, which by the way, the football team did fairly well this season. And they are clearly a better team uh, than they were a few years ago. So well, because I haven't been attending, we'll see about that when I come back. Well, that's Bill, true. Well, you, you know, God forbid you come back. First game back. If we lose, that's it. You, by the way, no, but you better dri- Virginia Tech wins like fifty. Exactly right. You better drive yourself because if God forbid we go back to Charlottesville, we go back again, we lose. You're you're walking back to. Uh, walking Bill, back um, I love you. Thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for being so honest and forthright and and discussing what I know are, are, are wonderful, but also painful um, moments in your life. So thank you. And hopefully you will come back and we can have a discussion about how I have now become the best thing that ever happened to you via football 
shortly after I attend the first five games of the season with you next year. That'd be terrific. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Julie, so much for having me. So that was quite an interview with Bill. And uh, what do you think? I mean, I, I haven't really stopped thinking about it since we did it earlier today. I couldn't help but think of you and Bill's relationship because you are that person who like is that friend who who has people's backs and and also you haven't gone through something like that it, you don't know the human story until you hear it bill is fortunate in so far as he had a strong circle of friends who were apolitical when this happened and they stuck by him and what's interesting is that the the people in politics that you think really are your friends because they're your friends and not necessarily political they don't i mean a lot of them ran and continue to run from him, which is sad. And I can speak firsthand about that experience for me as well. It just, it just so happens that it, I don't know if politics attracts those kinds of people or those kind of people are attracted to politics, <laughs> whether the chicken or the egg came first. But it is true that these are not people you necessarily take to the bank, which, which uh, by the way, Donald Trump will soon find out. All these people who were you know, kissing up to him and scared of him when he was president, they're not going to be returning his phone calls. You know, Julie, and you know something, when I was researching for this interview, I, I read a Matt Taibbi uh, review of Chris Christie's book, and, it, yep. and Matt Taibbi just ripped Christie, but at, rightly so, because just showing what kind of how he latched onto Trump and just like kowtowed to him so often and then got nothing and was pushed to the side like trash from him. He's that person that you just can't trust. He's like the clinger on who who wants something. And Christie's a good example of that. I mean, Christie endorsed Trump. And when you ask Christie, why did you endorse Trump? Christie said very clearly, well, because I, I knew he was going to win. And I remember being in the makeup, in the green room, rather, at Fox, sitting next to, I believe it was Robert Jeffries, you know, the big pastor from Texas, from Dallas, I think is where he's from. And he endorsed Trump. And I remember turning to him in the green room and saying, with all due respect, why are you endorsing Trump? He stands for everything that you're against. He stands, you know, three times divorced and and grab him by the you know what. And that was before that incident. But certainly is not. He's the definition of everything that you stand against. And he said, oh, because he's going to win. And I just thought that was a very honest answer, but it's also just underscores that there really are no permanent alliances in politics ever. Mm -hmm. And I can say that for my own life. I mean, there just aren't. And Trump is going to find that out where if he doesn't keep the MAGA coalition together, the politicians will be the first to go. Look at Mitch McConnell, who just decided to discover his spine the day that the helicopter was taking off from the South Lawn of the White House back to Andrew's (laughs) Air Force Base. (laughs) You know, all of a sudden he's like, oh, yeah, Trump stoked all these crazy people. These people were stoked by Trump and, you know, a lot of his powerful enablers. But yet he's not calling out the powerful enablers by name, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, because he still needs their votes to stay as majority leader or minority leader as he is now. It's just fascinating if Trump thinks that he's going to just be able to waltz back in in four years. He's not going to be able to do that unless he can keep the MAGA crowd, which are not the politicians, intact. And that's going to be a lot harder to do if he doesn't get his megaphone back. Because don't forget, he came off The Apprentice. He had a huge national platform. I don't know whether Fox is going to give him back his perch um, on Fox and Friends. That's another way to 
to communicate. Certainly he's been banned by social media for life, I guess, or however long on Twitter, you know, is he going to go to parlor? I don't know. Parlor has been deplatformed. So he's going to have to figure out how to communicate and starting Trump TV is a great idea, but it's expensive. He's broke. He's got a huge bill coming due. So I don't know. I mean, the person who should really be praying to God that Trump goes away is Ted Cruz, because Ivanka is going to move back to, you know, move to Florida and, and primary him otherwise. That's, by the way, another example of somebody who just enabled and enabled and enabled, and it came back to bite him because, as everybody knows and has known a long time, including now, the QAnon people are discovering, and, and Joe Exotic, who was trashing Trump <laughs> yesterday for not giving him a pardon. You cannot get in bed with Donald Trump. Because you will eventually get hurt. It's, you know, it's the adage about lying down with dogs. You, you know, get up with fleas. That's him on steroids. Yeah. There's been nobody on earth who hasn't been diminished getting in bed with Donald Trump. So, Julie, to, to change the tone, what are you, instead of doing what's salty this week, because this is such an epic week and that was an epic interview, what are, what are you looking forward to? Um, Amanda Gordon. Oh, my God. I cried. 22 years old. 22 years old. Did you see her interview with Anderson Cooper the night of the um, inauguration? No. She said something interesting. She said, you know, words matter. I'm not a visual person. I'm a words person and words matter. And uh, I am too. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, not a visual person. I'm a words person, not to the extent that she is obviously at all, but that's so important for somebody to say. And she didn't say it in a political way, but if you translate it into political ways, words do matter. And if there's any lesson that we learned over the last four years, words matter. You can't just throw out, especially if you're in a position of influence, you can't just throw out words willy nilly and expect them to kind of flow into the transom. Oh, they dear. matter. Yeah. They abs- I remember when I first started at Fox, um, in their scripts, they used to write illegal for immigrants. And mm-hmm. I never did that. I refused. I always wrote undocumented immigrants, but it ended up only getting changed back to illegal like two out of 10 times. But it it does because when you now have an audience who hears illegals and you hear people talked about in negative derogatory ways, it becomes sort of ingrained in your mind. So when you when you have a certain tone and you talk about people in a certain way, they absolutely do matter. Well, I mean, a person is not illegal. Right. First of all, someone's <laughs> humanity is illegal. Yeah, nobody's humanity is illegal. Somebody asked me today what will define the last four years for you. And the person I was talking to said uh, what would define it for him is going to be the Capitol riot. But what defines it for me is kids in cages. Yeah. And the separation of these kids in cages. I mean, the one thing I'll say about Joe Biden that he is somebody I've been around so, so much in my life because he was just that guy. Like he would always come to events. Like I've been around Joe Biden probably more than any other politician that I haven't worked for. And, um, you could agree with him. You could disagree with him, but he's fundamentally a decent human being. He's just a good man. And his, he, he's, he's deeply Catholic and I say that as a, I'm not Catholic, but I say that as a compliment because his Catholicism was very much informed by what I think the best of Christianity is, which is helping the downtrodden 
looking out for the least among us. And I think it's why he endorsed marriage equality before Barack Obama did. I think it's why you'd never see him doing family separations and he will do, and he's said that he will do whatever he can to reunite these kids with their caregivers or their parents. Um, he's just a deeply decent man mm-hmm. and very much informed by that whole, I think informed by his religion, he's a deeply faithful man um, or faith driven man, I should say, but he's also a, um, there's one of two ways a Joe Biden could have gone, right? He could have become bitter and enraged and hating life and God and humanity and whatever else he believes in after the deaths of his wife and daughter. And then 40 years later, bookended by the death of his son, Bo. Or he could have become an even better human being and somehow reached deep within him to, to, to become more human. And I think that's what he did. And it's interesting. I was watching his face at um, the inauguration the other day. And I was watching his face as he and Jill were watching the fireworks. I don't know if you watched the fireworks display, um, but they were standing at the White House watching the fireworks over the Washington Monument coming off the Potomac. And the expression on his face at both events I thought was very interesting. This was not the apex of his life, the way that I think it would have been even, you know, eight years ago or 12 years ago when he ran against Obama. I think after Bo Biden died, um, like it will never be, nothing will ever have the emotion of that, good or bad. And so I think he's somebody that these people can throw stones at, they can rip him the way, you know, Trump, you, you looked at him the wrong way and he would start snarling at you because his ego was so wounded. I don't think Biden cares anymore. I just think he's he feels like he has a job to do and he's doing it. And he know, doesn't have time to waste. He's been to the valley, right? He, and and re- crucially, I think I read this interview with him. He said after his wife and daughter died down, granted, how long ago was this? He understood that he will never feel perfect again like there will never be overwhelming joy again nothing will like there will always be something dark and that's before Bo died and so I think he's you know he's here to do a job and I think he was sincere when he said look into my heart you know if you still don't like what you see go ahead and disagree but give me a chance but he's not going to be his ego is not going to be wounded I don't think he's got much of an ego left good or bad that's my sense. Again, I don't, it's not like I've ever had a discussion with him <laughs> in any way, shape or form about this, but that strikes me calling it from interviews and also from just his expression the other day. What, what level of emotion can he possibly feel good or bad that could ever rival the level of emotion he felt when his kids died? Right. Uh, I couldn't imagine that, but no, I, I and think then, that's the empathy yeah. is exactly what this country needs right now. And a lot of young people my age and and the generation younger than me are like, you know, it's a lot of the old guard with Biden and it's still like the status quo. But Biden has this empathy, like you were talking about, and this understanding 
that can move a needle in that I really think it's not such a shame that, you know, you didn't get maybe the AOC president right now. Because I don't think right now our country, I, I think our country needs a Biden in this kind of empathetic figure who can still get on the side and see Bernie's point of view and like go a little more left on a lot of his things. But I think that's exactly what our country needs right now. Yeah, I agree. All right. On that very happy note, happy beginning of hopefully a period in our life where we don't have to sit here and worry about somebody getting angry and pushing a nuclear button, getting angry at something you heard on TV. and, and We don't have to get salty about a tweet anymore. I don't, have to get salty. I don't really have to care about Twitter anymore. It doesn't matter. You don't have to get salty about a tweet. You don't have to get salty about these kids grifting all the time. I mean, the the level of projection is just absurd. I mean, these grifters who are bitching about Hunter Biden engaging in probably the biggest grift in the world, up to and including, by the way, he's now extended Secret Service protection for his kids for the last six months, which is deeply, deeply unusual. I don't know if it's ever been done before. Why do they get secret? Why are the taxpayers paying to protect Ivanka Trump? She's got enough money to hire her own security. She feels she needs it. That's it's that. It's that kind of yeah. grift. Like she's going to be traveling on her own private business for her own rate, doing whatever she does. Um, and same thing with Eric and, and, and Junior. Why are we paying for them to be protected at taxpayer expense. I mean, do they not have money? I mean, the answer is no, of course they don't. They're totally broke and their bills are coming due. But we'll see. I guess the next time we hear about the Trumps is when Cyrus Vance makes a decision whether to indict or not. Well, we have a great season on saltier politics to come. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.